beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Genesis 2, we read about the creation of the very first woman. And when Adam met Eve, you can tell he was absolutely thrilled with his new bride. In fact, it sounds like he's over the moon. This was God's plan. This is what the Lord wanted. The Lord originally created only the man. After naming all the animals, it was clear there was no one else like Adam around. So God put Adam into a deep sleep and created Eve from his rib. When Adam awoke and saw the woman God made, he couldn't help but exclaim, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This was God's wonderful design, and Adam praised God for it. After this exclamation, Genesis 2 then gives the following comments. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And Matthew 19 tells us, quoting these words from Genesis 2, that these comments were given right from the very mouth of God. And so what do these words teach us? It teaches us that the physical union of a husband and a wife were designed by the Lord. It was designed by the Lord. Human sexuality was his idea. And it was his gift. As one author put it, human sexuality is not something we discovered behind God's back. It's also not something he grudgingly gave to us as if we were some kind of necessary evil. No, the one flesh union of husband and wife is God's plan and his gift. Reminds me of the words found in 1 Timothy 4 where we read, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And that includes also the topic of, at hand this afternoon, from God's word. It is part of God's good creation. But because it's God's idea and his gift to us, he also commands us to use it as he designed it. And following God's command on this important point is so important because it keeps us from great harm. And at the same time, keeping this command will bring God much glory. So that brings us to the sermon theme this afternoon, which is as follows. God commands us to use the gift of human sexuality as he designed it. We're going to look at, first of all, protecting God's gift of sexuality for our own good, and secondly, restoring God's gift of sexuality for God's glory. Now, when something is very valuable to you, you take great care to protect it. 
Valuable jewelry might be kept hidden in a safe place in your home. You don't leave expensive tools lying out overnight on a job site where anyone can take them. Things that are of great value to you, you protect. You take care of them. Make sure you don't misuse them. Imagine you owned a very expensive sports car. Just imagine anyone, maybe a brand new Lamborghini. Now, it's not as if I've ever driven one before, but I'm sure it's wonderful to drive. It has incredible power, handles like a dream, it's engineered to perfection. You will want to take care of that expensive sports car. But if one day you decide to take that Lamborghini off-roading, then guess what? Your sports car is going to get wrecked. And even if you do get it back on the road, it's never going to be the same again. You basically just threw away a car worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Foolish. Now, I know it's by no means a perfect comparison, but the same principles apply to human sexuality. This sort of intimacy is a valuable gift given to God, or given to humans from God. Because that's true, we need to be careful to protect it to use it in the way God designed it. If we misuse it, it's only going to cause great harm. Now, many people in this world view the Bible's teaching on sexuality as severely restrictive, perhaps even oppressive. Some might view it as downright dangerous. But we must all understand one thing. When it comes to this aspect of human life, everyone knows that boundaries need to be in place. No one on this earth is for the unrestrained acting out on bodily desires. Everyone agrees that some sexual desires and activities are harmful and need to be repressed. Just think of how the Me Too movement from a few years ago exposed this very truth. Now, you might have some issues with that movement, and perhaps you're right on those points, but one thing is clear. That movement shows the incredible amount of damage done when humans transgress God's commandment in this regard. So many people have been hurt by these sins, and so many people are hurting through these sins. And that's one reason why God has given us the seventh commandment, to protect human life. As one author put it, the matter of human sexuality matters so much to God because people matter to God. And if we disregard God's design and commandments, we will do great damage. Damage to ourselves damage to others. It's simply unavoidable. Take only the matter of lust. Many people might view it as no big deal. After all, it's just something that's taking place in your own mind. How's that going to hurt someone? And when the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 5, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, some might say, well, What's the big deal? It doesn't hurt anyone, does it? But the truth is that looking at others with lustful intent does in fact harm them. 
when you harbor lustful desires towards another person, you start to objectify that person. Instead of seeing them as a person to be protected and served, they are turned into a commodity to be used for your own pleasure. And this dehumanizes someone else, and it will cause further harm. Just think of what happened to King David. His adultery with Bathsheba began with lustful thoughts and looks. And giving free reign to those desires led to all kinds of damage. He took Bathsheba for himself. He took away Uriah's wife and his life. He took Bathsheba's integrity. He took her from her home. He took away the life she once knew. Started with David's lust and led to a string of take, take, take for himself. Similar things can be said about David's son, Amnon, in 2 Samuel 13. Amnon viewed his half-sister Tamar with lustful intent. Instead of putting his sinful desires to death, he let them grow until they controlled him. And finally, he violated Tamar and it caused nothing but hurt. Amnon himself only embittered his own spirit through his sin. Instead of finding satisfaction and contentment and peace by acting out on his lusts, he became wretchedly angry. 2 Samuel 13 says, After he violated Tamar, Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Damaged only himself. And as for Tamar, look at the hurt she endured. She lived as a desolate woman in Absalom's house. Beloved, it works this way with all violations of the seventh commandment. That's why 1 Thessalonians 4 says what it does. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now, when Paul wrote these words, he was, of course, writing them in the context of the Roman Empire. And this teaching would have been shocking in the ancient world. The idea that men had to exhibit this type of self-control would be considered outrageous. It was considered normal for men to act out in the socially accepted ways. Violation of slaves temple prostitution and the like were the order of the day. They were even expected in many ways. And women, they had no say in these matters. So often they fell prey to the power of men. The modern-day Me Too movement had nothing on ancient Rome. Now, don't get me wrong when I say what I'm about to say. Men are not the only ones who can sin in these matters. Of course not. Things like modern-day pornography is not just a male problem. But the Bible in places like 1 Thessalonians 4 addresses men specifically in the ancient world 
because by far, men were the perpetrators in these sins. They held the power, and they used it for their own gratification, for selfish desires. But here, God told the Christian men in the ancient world that no matter what their practices were before they came to Christ, now they had to control their bodies in holiness and in honor. And they had to put those unlawful desires to death. And this sexual ethic gave great benefit to women of that time. They could no longer be treated as commodities used to satisfy lustful cravings. Temple prostitution, violation of slaves, and the general exploitation of women had to stop. But notice that women were not the only ones to benefit from the Bible's teaching here. God gave these commandments also to benefit and protect men. Listen only to verse 6. God gave, gives these instructions also so that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. The unrestrained actions by men will cause great damage also to other men. And that's because God designed one woman for one man. And adultery and fornication run roughshod over that design. They violate the intimacy God is meant to be reserved between one man and one woman. Similar damage is caused by all manner of related sins. Think of pornography. Pornography brings great damage to the people on the screen and to those watching it. Pornography has only increased exponentially the exploitation of people through things like human trafficking and the like. And coupling together physical violence with intimacy is starting to be viewed as normal. Healthy relationships become nearly impossible when pornography is indulged and allowed to, to grow. So, beloved, I hope we can see that in all this, we want to protect human sexuality also for our own good. The seventh commandment, as described in the Bible, is viewed by many as oppressive. The reality is nothing could be further from the truth. The seventh commandment, like all of God's commandments, is good. And it was given for our good. Human sexuality is a valuable gift from God. Because it's so valuable, we need to protect it and use it in the way God designed it. Failing to do so will bring great harm, but using it rightly will serve to bring God glory. That brings us to the second point. Now, as we study the seventh commandment, we don't want to focus merely on the don'ts. We also want to see the positive outworking of this commandment. I think back to Genesis 2 again and the creation of Eve. We see there God's wonderful design. We see wonderful intimacy between Adam and Eve. And that being the case, we want to see this gift restored for God's glory. 
And the first thing this involves is restoring us as fallen humans. And the first step in restoring us as fallen humans is understanding and receiving God's forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, in the first point, I emphasized the damaging effects of breaking the seventh commandment. And that's necessary because it's meant to guard us against these sins. But hearing all that can also bring upon you perhaps an incredible burden. Many people feel ensnared by these sins with no hope of breaking free. Perhaps you are feeling burdened with guilt and shame. And if these are not dealt with, it can actually only, it often will lead to further sin in this regard. So keeping the seventh commandment begins with knowing and understanding God's forgiving grace. And it's only by the grace of God that we can move forward in obedience. See, Christ died too to pay for sins against the seventh commandment. When David confessed his great sin of adultery with Bathsheba, the Lord forgave him freely and fully, not holding anything back. As another example, in, in John chapter 4, we meet the women of Samaria. And her life was one string of violations against the seventh commandment. She had had five husbands, and she was now living with another man who wasn't even her husband. So this was an adulteress of epic proportions. But what did she find in the Lord Jesus Christ? By putting her faith in Christ, she found salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life. And after speaking with the Savior Jesus, the woman excitedly went back to Samaria to tell the others in the town about him. And listen what she said to those other people. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, given her life and how she had lived in her life and all the sins she committed. You know, this is a, a surprising thing for her to say. In fact, she probably came to the well at this time because she didn't want to be around other people. She had all these black marks on her. She had committed so many sexual sins. And yet she runs excitedly to uh, her fellow uh, citizens of this town and says, this man knows everything I ever did. You might expect the people of the town to reply, this man knows everything you ever did and you're excited about that? Aren't you a little bit anxious about that? Look at what you've done. But that's what the forgiving grace of God does. God's forgiving grace in Christ took away her shame. It was covered by the saving work of Christ. Christ had removed her sin and her shame. He removes our sin and shame too. Now, one of the best things in the world is for someone to know everything about you and to still to love you. Isn't that the, op isn't the opposite of what we sometimes fear that people will know everything about us that sounds rather scary, doesn't it? 
for everyone, someone to know everything about you, all of your sins, all of your failings. Doesn't sound very nice. And surely that would mean they would love us less, doesn't it? Through His grace, Christ had freed this woman from her past. The burden of her sins was removed through Christ. And it was the first step, the most important step in her restoration. And that's how God restores us too. And it's in Christ Jesus that we can finally come into God's presence again. Think back to Genesis 2 in the creation of Adam and Eve. The last verse says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Right? They had no sin, so there was nothing to hide. They felt completely at peace in each other's presence and in God's presence. Of course, all of that changed when they sinned, didn't it? When they sinned against God, suddenly their eyes were open, and they felt a deep sense of shame. They tried to hide from God and hide from each other, and so they covered themselves with fig leaves. But what did God do when He came to them? He did confront them with their sin. Then He covered them properly, giving them clothing made from animal skins to cover their shame. And God has done the same thing for us by giving us our Lord Jesus Christ. He clothes us with Christ. And now it's in Christ and being clothed with Him that we come before God. And now we know that in Christ, yes, God knows all about us. He knows all of our secret sins too. But it's through our Lord Jesus that He still loves us. And it's an incredibly freeing concept. Nothing to hide before God. You can't hide anything from Him anyway. Think of the woman of Samaria again. Run back to tell others about the Christ. This man told me everything I ever did. Yes, he knows about my ugly past, but he's the Savior of the world. And so he has saved me. So that's the first way God restores us, through his forgiving grace. The second way he does it is through the renovating work of the Holy Spirit. It's true. Sexual sin causes a lot of damage. And this damage can linger for a lifetime. And yet the Holy Spirit is powerful to restore and to renew. Think back again to the illustration of the sports car. You take that sports car off-roading, driving it over boulders, through mud pits, across rough terrain. It's going to cause a lot of damage. In some ways, it might never be the same. Through the skilled work of good engineers and mechanics, it can be restored. Well, it's even more so with the work of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter how far you have fallen, He can restore you, and He does restore us. And He renews us to obey God's commandments more and more, also the seventh commandment. One thing this includes is using the gift of human sexuality in the way that God designed it. And Scripture is clear about this. Sexual intimacy is reserved for the marriage relationship only. It's how He designed it in Genesis 2. This is how it's explained again in other parts of Scripture. 
Just reading the teaching of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 19, he makes it clear there that the one flesh union of a man and a woman is reserved only for the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. And one reason for this is because a physical union of husband and wife is meant to bond them together. It's a visible expression of the fact that God has made husband and wife one. And this sort of intimacy has a profoundly unifying effect on two people. And this can only be done in the context of a marriage where one man and one woman are covenanted together for life. Reformed pastor Tim Keller put it so well when he wrote, This deeply intimate act is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. And Scripture insists it is radically dissonant to give your body to someone to whom you will not commit your whole life. What are the implications for our lives? Well, for those who are, of us who are not married, it means you need to reserve this intimacy for the marriage relationship only, even if you never marry in this life. For thus, those of us who are married, it means husband and wife should aim to cultivate this intimacy in their relationship. It is against God's design for marriage to foster an atmosphere where this intimacy is lacking or even non-existent. This not only serves to give expression, this intimacy, to their union as husband and wife, but to solidify that union. That's how God has designed it. And that's not all, of course. We see something else of God's design in Genesis 1. Notice there what God desired. He desired to make image bearers who could rule over his creation. They could fill the earth and subdue it. Adam and Eve could not do this all on their own. In order to fulfill this purpose, humans would need to bear children. So God gave them his blessing, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Human sexuality is also meant for procreation. While it's not the only purpose God designed for it, it's still one main purpose. And there is a danger that we forget about this aspect of God's design or try to push it out of view. If you look at this world around us, there's a phenomenon happening in many places where countries face plummeting birth rates. In some cases, reversing this trend is nearly impossible and will cause great harm to societies and nations, which will be felt in coming decades. We must understand that church is not immune to this either. Now, let me be perfectly clear. 
not telling those who are married among us how many children to have. But part of God's design for the union of a husband and wife is to have children. This is one primary way how God builds His church. and He gave His blessing on His creatures and on Adam and Eve and all His creatures to fulfill this very design. Fulfilling this mandate so that God's image bearers fill the earth will undoubtedly bring God glory, and that too will be for our good. Amen. Let us respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing hymn 50, all four stanzas.